Good morning. Today's passages are Psalms 15 and 24. I want to encourage you to turn there. We're going to read Psalm 15 for now. And as we do, if you'd stand, let's read God's Word together. His holy and inspired, authoritative Word for us. Psalm 15, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell in your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue, does no evil to his neighbor nor takes up a reproach against his friend in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this psalm and the reminder of what it looks like to serve you with our whole heart. I pray that you would instruct us by it and inspire us to live more like Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, perhaps as you read this psalm with me, you heard some echoes of Psalm 1. You may remember there we read, blessed is the one, and then learned the conditions that were necessary in order to receive blessing. And we called Psalm 1, or at least commentators call Psalm 1 a Torah psalm, a Torah psalm. It's a a law psalm. And that's a category of psalms that we find in this book that really detail God's law and expectations as conditions for blessing or descriptions of what we should be prioritizing in our life. And Psalm 15 is similar in the sense that instead of of beginning with uh, the poetic praise that we've been used to in some or even with a lament, there is instead a question. And the question is, ultimately, who will enter heaven? Now, David doesn't use the word heaven in this psalm. He speaks of sojourning, and that refers to someone who settles down. And in this case, he's saying settles down in God's tent. And if you think about what would be God's tent, you probably know that that's a reference commonly used phrase for the tabernacle. That was God's tent. And so this idea of settling down or staying in God's tent is is really saying, how can can we stay in your presence, God? And that's emphasized then in the next sentence when it speaks of dwelling on God's holy hill. David's really asking, who can enter your presence, Lord, and stay there? And so that's why I say, for us, the question becomes, who can enter heaven? That's ultimately God's presence and stay there. And it's the remaining verses in the psalm that answer that question. And it's, it's important that we realize as we look at, at what we might call requirements that the question is not so much what gets us into heaven. Let's be clear about that. This isn't about what gets us into heaven But rather, what does the person who enters God's presence and dwells there, what does he look like or she look like? What marks his or her life? 
and character. And note that none of the descriptions that we see in these next verses are religious, meaning that none of them are about knowing doctrine or attending church, etc. Rather, the descriptions go to the heart of a person's character. And so I want to, to exhort you to realize this is, not a, this is not a Sunday type of thing, right? That the, the person that goes and, and enters heaven and dwells in God's holy hill, what is he or she like? He's, he's the one that carries the big 40-pound Bible and comes to church every Sunday morning and arrives half an hour early. No, this is not a Sunday thing. This is an every day, every hour type of thing. So Psalm 15 gives us this very accessible list of spiritual descriptions. And because of that, it was a favorite psalm in church history. The Benedictine monks, for example, they recited Psalm 15 along with Psalms 34 and 95 to remind themselves of how to live. Hilary of Poitiers, who was a church father of the 4th century, said, Psalm 15 should be preserved in the inner parts. It should be inscribed on the heart. It should be stamped on the memory. And it should be a treasure. This copious brevity, he says, ought to be brought to us day and night. And in fact, he concludes his entire commentary in the Psalms by saying that Psalm 15, of all the Psalms, ought to be our guide on the journey to eternity. Jerome, in the 5th century, used Psalm 15 as part of the catechism for new converts. John Calvin said of Psalm 15, the conditions for being worthy residents of God's house may not be what we expect. Shouldn't emphasis be given to marks of godliness like faith and prayer? He says, no, hypocrites can show those exercises. It's not so much he finishes an outward behavior as it is an inner disposition such as a singleness of heart and righteousness towards others and a sincerity of speech. And I I want you to hear what these men and others were saying. It's easy for someone to profess to be a Christian, even to recite doctrine to pray, but what do we see consistently in the life of those whose first love, whose greatest passion is Jesus Christ? We see these qualities and character attributes that are here in Psalm 15. And I encourage you, therefore, as we work through them, to examine your own life. Do these things describe you? Where do you need in the strength of the Holy Spirit to improve? And do you want to improve? So verse 2 begins with, He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. And that word blameless today often makes people think perfection. They then read how Job was considered blameless. Or they read how Noah is said to have been blameless in his generation And they become confused because, after all, Job and Noah sinned. They fell short of the glory of God because Paul says all have fallen short of the glory of God. So how can any person, even a great hero like Noah or Job, be considered blameless? 
And the issue is that the Hebrew word tamin, which is translated blameless, actually means wholeness or completeness. And when it comes to your life, what that word means is that you're not just a person who's strong in some areas and weak in others. But you are someone who is holy and completely committed to serving the Lord. Yes, you still struggle with sin. But there is a zeal and a wholehearted, whole-minded passion to living for Christ. And you're not going to find in a blameless person areas of significant compromise or hypocrisy. Bruce Waltke writes that it means consistent behavior to do something with the completeness of one's heart, a total commitment to the way of I am. And the result of this committed life, of this completely devoted life, are the two things that we find in verse 2. They are righteous action and truthful speech. In the 1940s, businessman Marion Wade built one of the most, uh, one of the largest privately held companies in the world, and he was known for this statement. He said, if you don't live it, you don't believe it. That's a good, it's a good phrase. It's a good reminder. If you don't Live it. You don't believe it. And it's really just a way of paraphrasing what we do find in the Bible in James 2, uh, verse 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving him the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. If you don't live it, you don't believe it. So not only does the blameless man or woman live out what he or she believes, but unlike the fool who in the previous psalm, in Psalm 14, says, in his heart there is no God, the blameless man or woman speaks truth in and out of his heart. And that phrase indicates someone who not only speaks truth, but also is trustworthy. Now you can see similar words in our other psalm, Psalm 24 here, specifically verses 3 through 6. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? See the same same question being asked, right, in this psalm. David says, he who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. You see the same same things, right? Clean hands, blamelessness, pure heart, speaking truth, does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. There must be something important about those things. He, David says, will receive blessing from the Lord, righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of of the God of Jacob. Now, if you've been asked 
this morning as you came in and given a piece of paper and said, okay, we're dealing with a psalm that has kind of like the top ten things that describe a blameless man, a godly man or woman. What would you put down on that list? Maybe you're surprised by what David puts in Psalm 15. And I'll ask the question in a different way. I'll turn it the opposite way. If you were to, to make a list of the top ten things that God doesn't like, you know, that mark a wicked man or woman, kind of is the opposite of, of this list in Psalm 15, what would you include? Sometimes it's in revealing to us what we find uh, reflecting holiness or wickedness, the things that we include on our lists. Would you, for example, put what you find in Solomon's top seven list, found in Proverbs 6, of the things that God hates? It says, seven are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes. Would you put that one? A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Now, I would bet most of you would put murder on the list. So the one who sheds innocent blood is not a surprise. Psalmist says, God hates that, considers it an abomination. But you know what? You might have been thinking even through the Ten Commandments or things that that you, you have high on your list of things that God might hate, and you might have put idolatry or adultery on that list, but they don't make that list. For whatever reason here in Proverbs 6, Solomon doesn't include it. He does talk about feet that run quickly to evil. That seems pretty negative. Uh, he, he talks about those who devise plots and cause harm. Uh, people like a Haman in the book of Esther. That's, that's pretty dastardly, right? One who sows discord among brothers. We can understand someone who breaks down unity and kind of uh, makes the church ineffective. We could see that as being evil. But how many of you would put a proud look? Maybe you'd understand pride. Okay, I'll, I'll do that. But a lying tongue. The seven things that God hates, a lying tongue. And then a false witness. And you realize that lying makes this list twice in some capacity. A lying tongue and a false witness. Two out of seven. And you know what? False speech and lying makes it twice on David's list of the top ten things that God wants to see. Not you know, He says it in the negative, right? In Psalm 15. David says in verse 3, he writes, who does not slander with his tongue nor takes up a reproach against his friend. And to slander in the Hebrew is, is best thought of speaking lies or exaggerating the truth, typically in the course of gossip. And the phrase take up a reproach against a friend refers to someone who brings shame to another person by speaking falsely or poorly. And so David says the godly man or woman rejects these behaviors and because of the mark of being completely wholly devoted to God, his life, his speech is marked by truth. And Solomon says God hates an abomination as false witnessing in a lying tongue. 
And I asked, I, I made the illustration of what would you put on these, these top ten lists because I wonder how many of us really think sincerity of speech, truth, and lying are as significant as they are to God. And perhaps the reason why they don't usually make those kinds of lists is that our culture doesn't seem to mind lying. In fact, in some ways, we expect that all people lie, right? Presidents even, elected in great part because they lie <laughs> to the American public. Not despite their lies. What, whoever can create the most glamorous false image shortly before an election stands a good chance of winning. Even though they promise not to raise taxes or affirm that they are model husbands and churchgoers, Americans accept the proposition that men of integrity simply don't, as a rule, actually run for president. So we expect that they will be liars. During the Clinton impeachment trials, we were consistently told that truth is not relevant to a president's capacity as the leader of America. So if Americans think that way about their most visible representative, what does it say about their acceptance of lies from the average man or woman. But in King David's time, there, there were no policemen. Society was, was not very mobile. Courts were much less formal. One did not call the police. Instead, it was a victim's obligation to press charges directly against whoever had committed crime against them. And those charges were taken to the elders at the town gate, city wall, and the accused and the alleged victim, they brought forth their witnesses, and the sentence was usually imposed immediately. There weren't months for appeals at higher court levels. There were no prisons, at least not as we know them. So one either made restitution in some way or sometimes paid for the crime with his life or the loss of a limb. And we can understand then how vital it was to be a truthful witness. Israel's legal system didn't take months for discovery. It didn't possess criminal forensics. you didn't have analysis of, of blood samples and DNA. The sole evidence was the spoken testimony of witnesses. And that's why Solomon says in Proverbs 19.28 that a worthless witness mocks at justice and the mouth of the wicked devours iniquity. When it comes to truth-telling, notice how David emphasizes relationship. He calls the person we are prone to slander or bring reproach upon our neighbor or our friend. This person isn't our adversary. It's not our enemy. It's our neighbor. And Proverbs 25 says, a man who bears false witness against his neighbor is like a war club, a sword or a sharp arrow, like a weapon of destruction, right? David speaks in verse 4 of the one who swears to his own hurt and does not change. And that reminds me of of Jesus' words during the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. He says, 
Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not take an oath by your head. You cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no, and anything more than that comes from evil. If you think back what I told you about these, cry, these cases in the Old Testament time, in David's time, where witnesses appeared before the town or city elders, they were expected to take an oath. They were supposed to take it in God's name, which was considered binding, but over the years, Israel developed these little loopholes. The degree to which an oath was judged to be binding was based upon how closely it related to God's name. And so if you intended the oath to be less binding, you'd, you'd make it as far from God himself as you could. You know, you'd, you'd, it'd be like my mother's grave or my good name. You could even say heaven or earth or the temple. And so against that practice, which was really an excuse to lie, right? To not be true to your word, Jesus says, no, stop that. Your simple yes or no should be sufficient. It should in fact be the same as if you swore by God himself. The people of God must be a people who prize truth. Why does lying appear in some form twice on Solomon's list, twice in David's list? Because we are witnesses of the greatest news ever to be given, the gospel. And if we bear false witness through lying speech when we talk to our neighbors, and our friends, or about our neighbors and friends, and we're willing to gossip and slander, or we're willing to break our word, how can the world trust us when we speak about the things of God? Paul encourages the Colossians in chapter 4, verse 5, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, make the best use of your time, let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Hebrews 12 puts it like this, we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, every sin which clings closely, let us run with endurance the race set before us, let's look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross Despise the shame and the seat at the right hand of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. What it's saying here in, in Hebrews, in Colossians, is that there is so much at stake, including the confidence that you will be able to dwell on God's holy hill. Why don't we speak the truth? Why do we distort it to get what we want even if it hurts others? And that's the spirit, by the way, of what, when David says to bring reproach upon a friend, there is some way in which you are benefiting 
from shaming someone else. Your reputation is enhanced. Your your deeds are protected. You look better by comparison, whatever it is. And so I want to ask you, because it's so important to God, is it important to you? Have you been speaking falsehood for any of the, the reasons that I mentioned? Are you prone to give others a false impression of the truth out of convenience or laziness? Do you try to manipulate others to get your way? Do you try to exaggerate and stretch the truth like a salesperson? Be overly dramatic to tell a story, get people to laugh. People think better of you. Do you allow untruths to go unchallenged? Because you don't want to stir up controversy, so you might as well let somebody believe falsehood. You know, silence is the refuge of cowards. Do you lie in an effort to escape consequences? Your boss may come up to you at work and ask, so how's the report coming along? And you're nowhere near finished on the report, but you're afraid to admit your miscalculation or your wasting of time, so you say, I'm finishing it right now. Do you children make up stories to avoid getting in trouble? Do you gossip? Proverbs 29.20 describes a person who speaks recklessly as being worse than a fool, and You know enough from the Bible's discussion of fools that you don't want to be compared to a fool, but the person who speaks recklessly is worse than a fool. And in another proverb, Solomon says that the wise person, by a contrast, he weighs his words. Do you weigh your words? Checks the facts. Considers how to say things and has the intent of bringing healing and edification. Is that what you do with your speech? The poet Francis Osgood wrote this poem. He said, a whisper broke the air. A soft, light tone and low, yet barbed with shame and woe. Now might it only perish there, no further go. Ah, me, a quick and eager ear caught up that little meaning Sound and another voice has breathed it clear. And so it wandered round from ear to lip, from lip to ear, until it reached a gentle heart, and that it broke. Those who gossip would, would likely be shocked to be called a malicious liar, but that is what the Bible calls him or her. Paul joins the sin of gossip with the sins of slander and conceit and disorder. He says gossips are idlers and busybodies. David says that a godly man who would dwell on God's holy hill does not gossip or slander. The Lord hates lying and its forms of lying, whether it be false witness or gossip and others, so much that he compares it with the being the devil. In John 8, 44, you are of your father, the devil, Jesus said, of those who were lying. 
and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. Ah, so we understand perhaps why this made the top list and alongside of murder because there is something in the nature of lying that kind of murders in a sense the reputation and honor of another person. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth. He desires to bring others down with him and so he speaks falsehood because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Friends, you do not want to be compared to the devil. You don't want to be called a son of the devil or a daughter of the devil because you speak recklessly and speak falsehood and do not prize the truth. But you have to want to speak truth. And Ephesians 4 gives some helpful advice. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. I wonder how many words we would each speak during the day if that was what guided our speech. Let no corrupting talk come out of my mouth, but the only talk that will come out of my mouth is that which is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. What percentage would your speech go down by? 70%? 60%? And what is your motivation towards your neighbor and friend? To build them up or to build yourself up? Proverbs 13.5 says that the righteous hates falsehood, but the wicked brings shame and disgrace. And we see there an echo of Psalm 15. And I like that strong language. The righteous hates falsehood. Why? It goes back to how David starts, Psalm 15. Because you are single-minded. Because you are wholly, completely committed and devoted to serving God. And what happens is that as you do that, it begins to dawn on you that you serve a holy God who dwells in truth. And the more you learn about His holiness and His sovereignty and His unchanging nature and His faithfulness, and his love and all of the rest about the Lord, one day it occurs to you that you, uh, by comparison, are not as high as you thought. And as you are overwhelmed by how high God is and how sinful you are, two things happen. You begin to reverently fear a God who is the epitome of holiness. And that's part of why in Psalm 15 says, you honor those who fear God because you, you see how God is working in them in that similar way. But the second thing is that you discover that what you treasure and what you find attractive begins to change. You begin to love what God loves and hate what God hates. And that is what is meant in verse 4 when David says, in whose eyes a vile person is despised. Because we love God and the things of God, when we see vileness, when we see depravity, we can't help but think of it in the same way that God does. 
Now, perhaps you're not fully catching what I'm saying. So let me say it like this. You can't have it both ways. You can't be both a friend of God and a friend of the world. You can't say that you love Jesus while you fill your eyes and therefore your heart with that which is vile. You can't say that you believe in a God of truth and yet be a master of falsehood. So what attracts you? Do you find yourself recoiling, despising when you see the portrayal of vile sin in movies, in literature, in pornography? Or do you find yourself saying, it's only a little bit, it doesn't really affect me. It doesn't affect you. That's not how David describes the mind and the heart commitment of the one who walks blamelessly. Now, I realize that maturity in the Christian faith takes a long time. But we need to be concerned if we find ourselves making excuses and running to the opportunities to see the vile things. We need to be concerned if we don't recoil, if we don't despise the things that God would hate. And it takes time to change, and we may have become a believer in in a moment, and we often spend years, even decades, laboring to work out the details of what it means to live as a Christian. And some changes do Sometimes take place rapidly, others take a place over a long, painful process, and I I recognize that sanctification, this process of becoming more and more like Jesus Christ, takes time, but I, I do want to say something very important, and that is that the process must be taking place. There's no excuse for saying, I'll change later. There's no excuse for turning off God during this hour of the day or this moment, turning God back on. If you're failing to walk more and more blamelessly, if you are not doing right things, if you are not speaking truth, if, you're not finding your, if you are finding yourself regularly caught in lying and gossiping and taking advantage of others and bring, bringing shame to others, taking advantage through money and other ways of others, as we see in the rest of Psalm 15, if you don't hate that which is vile and wicked, it is more likely the reflection of a dead faith than just immaturity. If you don't live it, you don't believe it. And as I read the Bible, I'm convinced that change must accompany the truth and the faith. Paul wrote to the Galatians in Galatians 4.19, My children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. We all know that this process of sanctification is agonizing. And Paul says, it's like this this process of childbirth. But notice he says, I'm perplexed, I'm confused, because I'm not seeing 
the things that at least should be reflected in that process. A change of life, a change of heart needs to be taking place day by day, needs to be seen in our priorities and the things that we do and the things that we say. If you want to grow in this area, perhaps it might not be a bad idea like the Benedictine monks did, which is to memorize Psalm 15 and to start asking yourself each day, is this list of 10 items more true of me today than it was yesterday? Am I known as a truth teller? Or have I built a reputation as a truth stretcher? Am I known as a reputation protector or am I known as a gossip? Am I known as someone that that a friend could call to say, let's go see this movie together that's filled with vile things? Or am I known as someone that they'd pass by and say, ah, probably wouldn't go with me to this movie or see this television series or... You pick. Sometimes we simply don't know where to start. And the prospect of overcoming what seems or has been a lifelong bad habit of sin is daunting. But Paul directs us in Colossians 3.1, set your hearts on the things that are above. King David asks in Psalm 119, how can a young man keep his way pure? What's the answer? Some of you know that from Psalm 119. How can a young man keep his way pure? To live according to the word of God. Proverbs 2, 10 through 12, Solomon says, wisdom, understanding, discretion will guard you from evil. And he says, the Lord gives wisdom and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. But to whom does the Lord give those qualities? He gives them to the one who receives his sayings. The one who makes his ear alert to wisdom. And so I'm speaking to all of you, but but I especially want to ask you young men and women today, will you incline your ear and be alert to wisdom? Is your heart ready for understanding? Are you praying for discernment? Are you, as you evaluate your lives, are you seeing some of these characteristics are weak characteristics? Pray that the Lord will work in you. As Paul says in Philippians 2, examine yourself with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. He told the Corinthians, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Don't buy the lie that the Christian life is easy. But don't buy the lie either that God can't give you the strength to break these habits of sin. Romans 8 speaks eloquently in verse 3, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. 
Jesus came to make it possible for you to live in the way that is described in Psalm 15, that you may one day dwell on God's holy hill. I think that's what we all desire. Let's pray. Lord God, you do have a holy, perfect requirements. And as we look at these, perhaps they weren't what we expected to find in terms of a top ten list. Maybe we were surprised at how practical the challenge is, particularly when it comes to our own personal lives of maybe not being quick to despise that which is vile, or not being people of integrity and truth, or finding ourselves struggling with gossip or lying and slander. And Lord, it may be that Psalm 15 is convicting and stretching today, and I pray that it is, that we would desire to to serve you better, that we would desire to be people of truth and one-mindedness. And so I pray for your Holy Spirit. Convict us, help us to incline our ears to listen, that our hearts be ready for wisdom. And then, Lord, I pray that you would make us and mold us and use us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.